So we are almost done with chapter 4 of James. And as I prayed just now, the more I study these verses and preach on these verses, I realize that James is writing, James wrote this letter not to unbelievers, but to people like us, right? That we are no, I think we're very similar to the audience that James is writing this letter to. For those of us who are, who are new today, once again, James is writing this, these letters to the Jewish Christians scattered in the Roman Empire. They left their Jewish faith, was ostracized by their, by their society, by, by their community, for the sake of Jesus' name, and they, it cost them much to be named Christian. And their faith should be commended, right? Because, they live, because their faith is costly. It costed them much for the name of Jesus Christ. And yet, rather than complimenting them, James, out of his great love for them, is admonishing them, correcting them, rebuking them. And he's rebuking them very harshly in chapter 4, because quite simply, they are living very in, in a very worldly way. Despite their confession of faith, in the ways in which they were conducting themselves, they were very worldly. James says, you are, you are being friends of the world. I was reading a commentator in the preparation of today's sermon, and that commentator noted that James is rebuking these people because they were practic- despite their confession of faith, they were practically living like atheists. What does it mean? What does it mean to live, live practically like an atheist? Well, atheists believe there is no God. And they suppress the knowledge of God. They, don't, they say there is no God. And therefore, in the way they, in the everyday manner in which they walk in this world, God is not, there is no consideration of God in all their decision making, in all their planning, in all, in all their desires. God is, God is absent. Being a practical atheist means, despite your confession of faith, in your everyday life, you practically live as, like an atheist, as if God did not exist. Last week, we talked about James is warning the Christians not to slander each other. I think the number one, I think one of the key evidence of whether you're living like a practical atheist is how you judge other people. James is teaching the Christians last week, you cannot slander your brother and sister because God is the only lawgiver and the judge. He's only he who has the power to save and the power to destroy. God is the lawgiver. He's the ultimate judge. Only what he says matters. But what the Christians were doing were they were judging their fellow believers in the church. What they were doing is this, as I said last week. They were taking a human being that God has given Jesus Christ to for salvation, 
a human being in whom, before the foundation of the world, God has determined to save, who has who cost it very much to save this person through the blood of his son. And God is taking this person and says, this person whom I have chosen is righteous. He's worthy. He's in. He's in my inner circle. He's my son. God is saying, this person satisfies my standards. Are you with me? What the Christians we're doing, the ones that James was writing this letter to, is he's t- they're taking this person that God has said, this person meets my standards. And they're saying, yeah, well, even though God says this, God, this person meets God's standards, this person doesn't meet my standards. Even though this person was in God, it was sat, like this person is an inner circle of God because this person is a son of God. For me, because of the way he speaks or because of the way he looks or because of what he has and what he doesn't have or because of, I don't know, how he hurt me or something, for whatever reason, this person doesn't meet my standards. Therefore, I'm free to defame him and judge him and slander him. Because he doesn't meet my standards. They're they're looking at each other, not through the lens of God. They're looking at each other as if God didn't exist. or Or as if the standard of God didn't matter. Are you with me? The The fact that they're judging each other, they're really saying God's standard either doesn't matter or doesn't exist. My standard matters. By judging each other that way, they're acting like practical atheists. If your opinion of someone, when you think about someone, if there is no consideration of God in your analysis of that human being, if your analysis of the human being is solely based on your perception and judgment, I am so sorry to say, you are living like a practical atheist. That's what James is saying. Us acting like practical atheists, not only it shows in our relationship with other people, it also shows in how we see ourselves. I had a great small group on Friday. And during the small group, as I was, as I was participating in small group, let's, let's be honest, I hijacked the small group, right? I try not to. I'm sorry, right? But as, as we were discussing the small group, we discussed what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. In chapter, 1 Corinthians 4, 3, Paul says, But with me it is very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. What Paul is saying in this, these verses is, when he looks at himself, he, he analyzes himself through the lens of God. He's a, he was a chief of sinners, he says, but Christ has forgiven him. He is a new creation in Jesus Christ. That is primarily how he saw himself. 
No matter what other people criticize him, no matter how he felt about himself sometimes, those weren't the controlling opinions about himself. In Paul's mind, the controlling opinion is who God says he was. Practical atheists do not look at themselves as who God says they are. Practical atheists sees themselves, I don't know, through the lens of your mommy and daddy, through the lens of your friends, through the lens of this, your flesh that condemns you. You're primarily determining the feelings about yourself based upon your limited perception. Look, I had a friend back in the day. Oh, I don't have much friends, but he was one of my closest friends. He suffered deep depression where all he wanted to do was kill himself. I've never seen anyone like it like him. And the underlying root cause of his depression is that he thought he was an absolute failure and a loser of a human being. He saw himself as a Christian, right? Loved my sermons, especially when I was yelling at him. Maybe if you don't mind me yelling at him, just confirm how, what a loser he was in his mind. Despite his confession of faith, he primarily saw himself as an utter failure. And it is causing him so much pain. I love him. And, I, and he's getting better. He, I think he's getting better. But let's be honest. He's looking at himself as a practical atheist. The practical atheism is causing him his pain. who God declared him to be, that didn't matter. What matters is the idea of acceptability that he has in his head. In the way you, in the way you look at yourself, are you a practical atheist? Sure, Jesus Christ died for me, rose, rose again on third day. Hallelujah. That's him. That's Okay, that's great. But it's one thing to agree with that. And another thing, to live in that reality in your mind. Are you a practical atheist? James is continually rebuking the practical atheism of the Christian through these verses that we read. Their practical atheism is also revealed in how they see their time in this world, and how they see their purpose in this world. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What is this, this Christian guy is saying, okay, I'm a Christian businessman. My business plan is today or tomorrow, I will set forth, I will go to a town, because this is back in the day, right, before internet. I will travel to a town, I will open my business in that town, spend a year there, make a profit. It seems very innocuous, pretty innocent, right? I, I think so. Look, someone asked me, I went to work on Wednesday, and someone asked me, hey, so what's your plan, Jerry? What's your plan? What's your plan for your career? And I go, I don't know, maybe 
me hopefully stay here at least until my daughter graduated from college, right? Pretty reasonable. Then, then get out of here, right? And then just, I hope to fully pastor the church. Maybe open up my own little practice where I help one or two people a month. But primarily pastor the church until they either fire me or I die. That seems like a very reasonable, godly plan. But James, in the light of this verse, is telling me and telling all of us, such a plan, such boasting, is evil. A guy who wants to go to a certain place, open up a business, and start a business and make a profit for a year... That's evil? James says, yes. Why is it evil? Yeah, I'm getting really thirsty. It's winter's prime. It is evil. Because in verse 13, where is God in all this person's consideration? Where is God? Where is the will of God? Where is the acknowledgement that God is sovereign and God is king? It's not there. This plan is void of God's presence. He is making a plan for himself as if it's up to him to do whatever he wanted with his time. He's not acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Once again, not acknowledging the sovereignty of God, that's practical atheism. Let's be honest. All of us think of our futures in that way. When you're constructing your future, where is the will of God in it? Where is the will of God? Where is the plan of God? Where is the, where is the consideration of God in all your plans? And I'm pretty sure I know all of you and I love all of you and all your plan for yourself is reasonable. You want to get married and if you're married, you want to build a nice career and nice, nice nest egg and whatnot. And those are all fine and dandy and good and innocuous. But in the consideration of your plan, of your construction of your life, where is God? Not thinking about him is what, not acknowledging him is what makes our plans evil. Look, the, theologically, God is sovereign. What is the sovereignty of, what, is, what does the sovereignty of God mean? We had, we had the summer series about the sovereignty of God, right? Sovereignty of God is God is omniscient, he is all-knowing, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere, he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, Right? The all-knowing, the ever-present, the ever-powerful God. What makes, his, what makes him omniscient is that everything has been carefully constructed in the most detailed molecular quantum level possible by him so that his plan will unfold. 
he will use his omnipotent power to make sure that his plan unfolds. Acts 17, verse 26, he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What Paul means in Acts 17 is this. God established humanity through one man, and since that man, God has also determined the boundaries in which all of us live. He has set forth seasons of when we, each of us will live. God chose Jaina, God could have chosen Jaina to live in, I don't know, like second century Korea. Jaina would hate it, right? So God has chosen Jaina to live in the 21st century America. He has determined the seasons of everyone and everything in the world. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 28, in God we live and move and have our being. He's saying the world is not an accident, yo. We are, the world is moving. In God, we, we live and we move and have our being. Our living and our moving and our existence is within the dome, within the frame of the existence that God has created. Colossians 1.17 In Him, all things are held together. The essence of reality from the quantum level to the macroscopic level is ultimately held together by God. The universe is expanding. It is expanding because God is expanding it this way. God is in control of everything. Everything is have its place. Everything is going into the direction that he has determined to be. Everything in our lives here are interconnected to the plan of God. It is not a random existence that we're living. That's what the evolution, ev- evolutionary biologist is saying, right? The unbelieving world is everything is random. Things are happening in a random way. No, it's the opposite. It's the entirely opposite. Things are not happening in a random way. Things are happening precisely in the way that it was planned. Look, my daughter, her hobby, and hopefully my retirement plan, is she writes fiction like J.K. Rowling. She's constructing a world of islands full of, I don't know what they do. Like, it's very bizarre. But anyway, she's constructing an island. Hopefully, I pray that she will write it and make a lot of money so I can retire, right? But she's developing characters in her story. And these characters have deep psychological trauma. <laughs> really? It's like, it's like she's psychoanalyzing her. My 13-year-old daughter is psychoanalyzing her characters. Right? And I, and I go, did I do a bad job as a parent? They have all this, her characters have all this pain. Right? It's to the minute detail she's designing. But I told her last week, they are, the, those characters are your creatures. They live and move in accordance to your design. We live and move in accordance to God's design. Even what happened to you yesterday. Even what is happening to you now. 
Even the ways that your cells are replicating right now. Even the ways in which your brain neurons are firing right now. Even the ways in which you are listening to me right now. Everything is connected to the unfolding of God's plan and will. Do you understand? Practical atheists are saying, my life is separate, apart from the unfolding of sovereign plan of God. Yeah, 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 we, I believe God controls all things, but my little life in this world, it's apart from his, it's apart from his sovereign, overall sovereign plan. My little life belongs to me. My little time belongs to me. It's separate from the sovereign plan of God. That's what practical atheists believe in. That's why what this guy believed in. What is this guy saying? Look, 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 look what this guy is saying. Come now, you, t- today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. Today or tomorrow, I have all the time in the world. Right? I have all the time in the world. I can either leave today or I can leave tomorrow. I have a lot of time. I'm not going to die. Tomorrow will certainly come. Because in my little life, it, would, it, it is inevitable that I'm going to live. So today or tomorrow, he's saying, we'll go to this. He's saying, I have all the time in the world. It's never any supply of time. So it doesn't matter whether I leave today or whether, it doesn't mean whether I leave tomorrow. It doesn't matter because I have all the time in the world. What else is he saying? We will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade to make a profit. La, 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 la. What is he saying? I, I forgot my notes. Oh, notice the autonomy of his plan. I have all the time in the world. So with all the time in the world, what I choose to do with my time I'm going to go, I'm going to open up a business. Right now, right, there's, everyone's, many people are leaving their jobs and opening up new businesses. It's like many people are opening up their business. Same thing. I'm going to open up my business. I'm going to go to this town, open up my business, trade things and make money. Look at the autonomous nature. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, and I know I'm going to make a profit because I'm awesome. Where's the doubt? Where's the doubt? Maybe my plan will fail. No doubts. Oh, I will make a profit. Because my business plan is solid. I will spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Once again, he's, 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 he's saying tomorrow is guaranteed. I will spend a year in that town, which means I know for a fact that I will be alive next year. Right? I know for a fact that I'm going to be alive next year. I'm going to see next year's Christmas. I have all the time in the world. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I know I'm going to make a profit. And I know for a fact that I'm going to be alive next year to see my profit. See how... He has, he doesn't care about the unfolding of God's plan. He doesn't care about the fact, he's totally oblivious to the fact that he's living in God's time. He thinks he's living in his own time. Now, 
The Bible is not condemning making plans. Otherwise, Sean Stark will be in huge trouble. Right? The Bible says a prudent man makes plans, right? He's saying, like in, in Proverbs, it says, look at the ants. Ants, are, ants make plans, and ants are diligent in executing their plans, and they're wealthy. Live like that? Live like the ants, he says. Good. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he gave us a detail what he, his missionary journey plan. He says, I'm going to spend the spring in Macedonia, I'm going to spend winter here, and I'm going to, I'm going to go with you in the summer. Right? Paul, has, Paul marked out specific schedules of his missionary plans. So the Bible is clearly not condemning planning. Right? So Sean Stark is safe. What is condemning is not the plan making, but the assumption that you are, that this time belongs to you, that you are the master of your own domain, and you can do whatever you wish to do in the time and time that God has given you. That's what, the, the, what James is condemning and calling arrogant. Look, let's be honest. We may think that we have all the time in the world. We may think this time exists for us, but it does not. The Bible is clear. God controls the time. God controls the season. God controls how long you will live. Did you know? I'm really into, like, Korean people these days. I'm very proud to be Korean. I really am. God bless for me to be Korean. Ever since I test drove the Genesis... And, and BTS Dynamite, I'm just, I'm, my gosh, I'm, I'm, and, and all my electronics at home, I've, I've, I've uh, changed refrigerators, washing machines, dishwasher, and microwave, guess what? All Korean brands, right? All, all of it, every single one of them, Korean brands, right? Love to be Korean. And my pride in Korea became further developed this week when, the, when I read about this guy named Benjamin Lee. Do you know Benjamin Lee? Right? Not Benedict Shin, but Benjamin Lee. Benjamin Lee, he is one of the pioneers of quantum physics. Did you know that? He, the dude was born and raised in Korea, finished Seoul, Seoul National University, graduated Seoul National University when he was 19, and he was one of the leading founders of quantum physics. People use, future Nobel Prize winners use his research as a basis of their research. He is labeled perhaps the most brilliant Korean that has ever lived. Wow. You know why you haven't heard of Benjamin Lee? Because when when he was 42 years old, he was driving on Interstate 80 in Illinois, where a tractor-trailer truck blew its tires and rolled on top of his car, of Benjamin Lee's car, on Interstate 80. His wife and two children had scratches. They made it alive. Benjamin Lee was killed instantaneously at the age of 42. Do you think Benjamin Lee knew that he was going to die when he was 42? One of the Korean celebrities' mother passed away a couple of years ago. She said, when she get, got up in the morning, 
she was complaining of stomach pains. The son says, Mom, go to the doctor's office. Mom went to the doctor's office at 2 p.m. By 7 p.m., she was dead. Does time belong to you? Can you will to live another day? Jesus talks about this foolish rich man. This foolish rich man worked hard all his life. And during the retirement, he looked at all of the stuff that he had. And he says, all the grain that I have, I cannot possibly, there's no place to store the grain. There's no place to store all the riches I accumulated over the years. Therefore, I'm going to build a barn where I'm going to save all the grain that I've made. And I'm going to live off retirement based upon those riches. Jesus called that man a fool. Because the very night that the barn was completed and the day that his retirement began, the man died. Assuming that you will live tomorrow. Assuming that this time is for you. Assuming there's ample time left. That's folly, James is saying. That's what he says in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We are not living in your time or my time. We're living in God's time. God determines how long the time in this world will last. God God has set how long you will exist in this world. And I will exist in the world. Let us not assume that this time belongs to us. James is also rebuking, once again, the autonomous plan that this guy had. The purpose of his life, he, the, he thinks he has all this time, and he thinks all this time he's going to use to build a business for himself. I'm going to work. The purpose of his life is business. The purpose of his life is opening up a business and become successful in the business. That's the purpose of his life. Yet James, verse 14, is asking, what is your life? Is that what your life is about? Oh, one second. This man primarily saw the goal of his life for business and success. But James is asking this man, what is your life? What is your life really about? I was like, as I was thinking about this verse, and I was like walking the other day, I came to a realization that I think every morning that I wake up, and I think every morning that I think, I tend to think that the purpose of my life is to provide for my family. I think that I tend to think, because I'm a traditional Korean guy, I tend to think that the purpose of my life is to provide for my family to make my family sacrifice myself in every possible way so that my children and my wife can be free. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm working hard so I can buy them time to do what they really want to do. And that's, sometimes that's how I see the purpose of my life. 
But is that really the purpose? Is that really what God has determined the purpose of my life is? I think certainly the call of my life, one of the major calls of my life is to provide for my family. That's clear. That's biblical. But the purpose of my life is not only to provide for my family. That is just the incidental subsection call. The larger call of my life is to do his will. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. What is my life, the primary purpose of my life is not to primarily provide for my family. The primary purpose of your life it's not so that you'll be the number one husband to your wife and that you'll be the number one wife to your husband. That's not the primary call of anyone's life. The primary call of your life is not to buy a house in Fairfax County or be super successful in your career. God has called us to do excellent work. That's true. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later, right? He has called us to excellence, but that is not the primary call. The primary call of God in your life is to do his will. Part of doing his will involves providing for your family. That's true. But that is not the primary goal. What is the primary goal of your life? James says, what is your life? You are, ju- you are a mist that appears for a time then vanishes. He is saying all the priorities that you have for yourself, all the things that you think you are, at the end of the day, they will fade away. What you think what life ought to be, that will fade away. These things that you think are so, so important, James says they appear in the morning and they vanish like that. This thing that you think is so important, is it eternal? Or is it a mist? You know? James is asking, what is the goal of your life? What is the purpose? I could go on more, right? But I'll edit myself. Look, we get in trouble, right? We get in trouble when we go through difficult times. We think when God doesn't show up in our difficult times, if God allows us to suffer in our difficult times, we think God doesn't love us, right? We're we're going through hard times, and every one of us, We'll go through hard times. It is God has planned our lives that way. For his glory, the unfolding of his will involves us suffering. It does, right? But when we suffer, we complain. God, why are you making me suffer? What's up? I've been faithful to you, but why are you letting me, why is this letting this happen to you? You're questioning that. I think you're questioning that because in your mind you think, God has the obligation to facilitate the life that you want to have. We question God in our difficulties because we think God's job is to make what we, what are, we think God's job is to 
realize our plans and make our and help us accomplish our plans. But God has other agendas. Look, I'm glad that they're not here. So, like, my father, my family is going through a very difficult time, right? Right now, my parents are. And I remember praying, God, I don't ask for much of you, I said, but please do not let this happen to my parents. I said, I'm faithful, and I know you, and I know you love me, and I, and I know, right, that you're, you're real, but please do not, as a son, I'm pleading as a son, do not make this happen. Do not, do not let this happen to my parents. But it did happen to my parents. And I was bitter. I asked for one thing. And it didn't happen. And my parents are suffering. And I told this to one of the small group members. And she said, it's not about what you want. It's not about you. It's about God's plan, isn't it, PJ? Oh, I've been rebuked by a member. She's absolutely right. It is not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about the unfolding of God's sovereign purposes in my life. We get bitter when God doesn't give us what we think we ought to have. What you think you ought to have, perhaps a secondary, to his larger purpose. I don't know whether you'll be married. I don't know whether you're going to have children. I don't know whether you're going to have a fine career. I don't know. I have no idea. Look, I was thinking about the other day. Like, Sean and I, we started our jobs, at the, new jobs at the same time. And we were funny because both of us thought every, when we were starting those new jobs, every week we thought we were going to get fired. John said he was going to get fired. I said, I'm going to get fired too. We thought, like, like, because there's so much, there's, there's so much issues that can come up, right? That we thought that, you know, eventually, you know, we're going we're gonna to lose our jobs. Sean is amazing what he does. But for me, I still think I'm going to lose my job every day. I still think that I am in the role of a lawyer because out of God's grace, because it takes like that for me to lose my job. And I'm literally conscious of the fact that I am in that job in D.C. because of God's grace, because that is in, a, that is in accordance to his plan. And one day his plan for me maybe is for me to leave that place but it's still the unfolding of God's plan that I am mindful of. Are you mindful of that too? I know you have your scripts. I know you want, you, you know, you think, you, you, know, you know what life ought to be. And I know you have a vision for yourself, a vision for your family of where you, need, where you think you need to be. And those are fine things to have, but guys, 
Are you mindful of the will of God that may be greater and different from the will that you have for yourself? Do you? Verse 14, 14, 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, we will live and do this or that. James is saying, rather than assuming that you have all the time in the world, rather than assuming this world exists for your plans, acknowledge the will of God. Acknowledge the plan of God. Acknowledge there is a higher plan that is beyond your plan. Acknowledge that will. Proverbs says, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Having a plan is fine and dandy, but no, there is an overarching plan that can override your plan. There is a will of God. You don't know God's will. I don't know God's will. And God's not letting us, telling us to figure out his will. But he's saying, acknowledge there is a will. Maybe his will for you is your utter failure in a, in a career. <gasps> Maybe his will, overarching will for you, is that you become single for the remainder of your days. <gasps> Maybe his overarching will for your children is not Harvard or UVA or James Madison, or maybe it is some, it is, maybe it's New Jersey, New Jersey Community College. Maybe that's his overarching will for your children. There is a higher will. Acknowledge that will. And do his will. His overarching will is a mystery. Right? Oh, no, it's not a mystery. How our our lives are going to unfold in this world is a mystery. But there are things that God has clearly revealed in his will, and we must submit to his will. Things that he revealed himself, uh, his will that has been revealed, we are called to submit to them. Number one will for us, God is saying, believe in the gospel. Number one will that God has commanded people to obey is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that you are a sinner, that I'm a sinner, that we are horrible monsters, but yet by the grace of God we are cleansed in Jesus' name, and in Jesus' name we are made righteous and we become sons of God. Believe in the gospel. Not in theoretically, But in reality, believe in the gospel before it's too late. Look, in the Old Testament, Moses approached Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, God wants, let my, God says, let his people go. Pharaoh said no initially. Then Moses came to visit him every day. And Pharaoh eventually said, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. He pushed off the decision until tomorrow, until it was too late. Guys, do you believe in the gospel? Let's be real here. I know all of you are raised in a Christian culture environment, but do you believe in the gospel? Is this how you see yourself? Primarily as a sinner saved by grace and as a child of the living God because of Jesus Christ. 
child of the living God, not because you were raised in a church or not because you raised your hand when your teacher asked you whether you believe in Jesus, but do you really genuinely believe that you needed to be saved and Christ saved you? Is that the foundation of your life and the foundation of our identity? If not, believe in the gospel. That's his number one call. Not tomorrow, today. Believe in the gospel. Also do his will. If you believe in the gospel, do his will. Colossians 2, verse 6, I think. For those of us who receive Christ, walk in him, being built up, rooted and be built in him, established in faith. Paul is saying, if you have received Jesus Christ, continue to live in him, be built up in him, be rooted in him, do the things that he has called you to do. Live holy lives. God has placed all of us in a particular situation among particular people so that we will do his will in the midst of those people, in the the midst of those jobs. Do his will. Fight sin. Like a demon slayer fights demons. You don't need the demon slayer sword to fight demons. You need the word of God to fight those demons. But fight the demons of your life. Love people deeply in the truth. Gently, deeply, graciously, but truthfully love the people in your life. That's his will for you. Always give praise. Always give thanks. Be joyful in all circumstances. Pray continually. That's his will for you. Do imitate him and live excellent lives in your field of work. Any job that he has given you, whether it's delivering pizzas from Papa John's or whether it is a lawyer in D.C. or whether it is, I don't know, designing software systems for the U.S. military, whatever it is, imitate God by being excellent. Be excellent. Strive to obey God. Strive to decipher the will of God. Look, I love you guys. Yesterday, I went to press. I discovered I have one of my favorite restaurants. I did, just didn't know, but thanks to a brother, I have a favorite Korean restaurant in Centerville. I'll tell you after the thing because I don't want to give advertisement, right? During our lunch, he was asking me questions about a particular concern. And he was seeking God's will in the, in the matter that he is concerned with. And I go, oh, dude. He bought me lunch so that he, could, he wanted to know the will of God for his life. Dude. Another sister, we, we, have, we had a long conversation about the will of God in her life. She wants to know the will of God in her life. There are people in this church who really do want to do the will of God, who wants our help in deciphering the will of God, and that is an absolutely beautiful thing. Not like being satisfied with our thoughts about an event, but striving to discern the will of God. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. Serve the church, serve each other, love each other. That's the will of God. Oh, I look at June, even though his hair color changes every week, week to week. I love that guy because that dude is in first year med school. When June told me he got into med school, I congratulated him. But in the back of my mind, what did I think? 
Uh oh, there goes June. He could be too busy for ministry. Oh man, there goes him. But my gosh, that guy rarely missed a Sunday. That guy went to the retreat. I see more of June now than when I saw when he was undergrad. He's, he's in medical school. And he's serving the church because he loves God and that's God's will for him. Live like that. We have a lot of work to do, as Joel says. Do his will in this short time, in this short world. Do his will. Will you? Don't be like a practical atheist thinking this time and opportunity exists for you. It does, they do not exist for you. It's not about you. It's about the unfolding will of God. Let's pray.